This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching, so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds, and Michigan has become the first state in 60 years to have right-to-work laws repealed. We have such a great show for you today. Politico's Rachel Bade gives us an update on the never-ending chaos in Congress. Then we'll talk to On the Tape host Dan Nathan about what's happening with our economy. But first, we have the editor of Balls and Strikes, Jay Willis. Welcome to Fast Politics, Jay. Thank you so much for having me to talk about Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl. I wasn't expecting an invitation to talk about this, but I can go for two hours, three hours. How long do you want to do this? So it was fixed, right? Yes. Okay, clearly. Oh, shit. Wait, people are going to listen to this, right? (laughs) Explain to me what's happening in Fulton County right now. Oh, boy. So the prosecutor in Fulton County, Fannie Willis, no relation, has been (laughs) leading an investigation into Donald Trump's efforts to, sorry for the legal jargon here, but fuck with the vote count in the 2020 presidential election in Georgia. Donald Trump unquestionably did like some very bad things in there. He, you know, was on the phone with the secretary of state, the Republican secretary of state in Georgia, uh, urging him to, and I'm quoting here, find the votes or threatening him with some sort of like a vaguely defined criminal prosecution. I have no idea what Trump was referring to. I kind of assume he didn't know what he was referring to either. But this is the sort of thing that uh, one does not do without incurring the wrath of a prosecutor. The problem is that this particular prosecutor apparently had an affair with someone in her office, which is just like deeply misguided on several levels. But what it's led to is Trump's defense team 
basically arguing that the whole case needs to get thrown out, that it is tainted by this scandal. And uh, he might prevail on that. I don't really know yet, but generally speaking, when you're a prosecutor and things are on the rocks because of who you slept with, it's not going great. Yeah. What is the larger implication for this? I mean, so there are several parallel investigations into Donald Trump's various alleged forms of criminality, right? Um, This case is being brought by a local prosecutor. It is independent from, for example, the criminal investigation into Trump in D.C., which is not to be confused with the civil investigation into Trump in New York, and so on and so forth. But I think the real damage here is sort of in the way that Trump is going to start spinning this sort of thing. If he can create a narrative among his followers and among people who might be susceptible to being his followers, that it is in his best interest to sort of lump these different criminal investigations together. And if he can use Fannie Willis's misconduct in one particular investigation to sort of smear all of the criminal investigations against him as tainted, as biased, as Democratic hit jobs, that's good for him, which is exactly why he's trying to muddy the waters here. Yeah. The other thing that it does, right, is that it aids one of Trump's biggest legal tactics, right, which is delay. That's right. Like, (laughs) for both legal and practical reasons. Like, legally speaking, if he is the nominee and wins election and becomes the president again, he suddenly has a whole lot of control over the federal investigations into him. I mean, setting aside the like obvious issue of whether or not the president should be directing Department of Justice investigations, of course not. Like, It's not like Donald Trump gives a shit about that. He would presumably just take action and kill that on day one. But then also just like practically, politically speaking, if he is president, I think it becomes a whole lot more fraught, for example, for a local prosecutor like Fannie Willis to prosecute him. So he is doing everything he can in this investigation, in other investigations to just run out the clock. I don't know if he's going to be able to run out the clock on every one of them. But again, the more he is able to narrow down the scope of legal problems he faces, the better his odds are of wriggling out of it one more time. I want to just unpack this for another minute. So basically, Trump is doing two things here. He wants to discredit this investigation by sort of spreading salacious gossip about Fannie Willis. Right, that she was cheating on her spouse, or she actually wasn't married, but her boyfriend was cheating on his spouse. By the way, the irony here, the thrice married adulterer who has this problem where he paid off a porn star, and that's one of his many legal challenges, is sort of rich. But basically what he's trying to do here is try this case with his people, his fans, right? That's right. A lot of this is effectively going on in the court of public opinion. I mean, what's happening with Fannie Willis is a part of like functionally more of a PR campaign than anything else. Right. If he can portray the prosecutor who is investigating him as tainted, as biased, as just as mired in scandal as he is, that's a victory. Like he doesn't necessarily have to rise above it, right? Dragging everyone else down to his level creates the same result. I will say like, if you're a prosecutor, like 
come on, it's so easy not to sleep with one of your colleagues. You gotta not do that. One of the like clearest through lines of the legal system in this country is prosecutors fucking up and doing something dumb at the worst possible time. But like at the same time, it's not like that changes what Trump did. So again, it's the creation of an additional salacious story to the salacious story that landed Trump in court in the first place. And the last thing I'll say about this is if a judge disqualifies Fannie Willis, Fannie Willis's office, the case could go forward still. But again, as you say, it's all about delay. Reading about reporting this morning, there's only a few other DAs in Georgia who have the bandwidth to take on a case like this. So if Fannie Willis gets booted, suddenly we're looking for somebody else, like who has the manpower, who has the bandwidth to do this? Maybe there is someone, but how long does that process take? The longer it takes, the closer we get to election day and the closer this gets to, practically speaking, not mattering. Right. And that's the goal for Trump. But also it would take a long time for a Fannie Willis replacement to get read in on this case. Right. Can you talk about that? Because the preparation is months and months and months. Sure. I mean, nothing in the legal system ever moves in like sort of the expeditious timeline that we're used to that perhaps we would like to see for purposes of the news cycle, for purposes of an election that is very much fixed on the calendar. And a prosecutor, even someone who wanted to take this case, even if they could take it on, like they can't go into court tomorrow and start freely discussing the subject matter. They have to get read up on it, just like Willis has been over the development of the case. So yeah, it's not just a matter of designating another lawyer, it's designating another lawyer, another DA, I mean, who can then begin the arduous process of reading in on the file enough to actually be able to do something with it. But also today, Trump had another legal snafu. Can you talk about this? So yeah, the case in New York is going considerably different than the one in Georgia. Very different tenor. No prosecutors sleeping with other prosecutors to the best of our knowledge. And in that one, we actually have a trial on the calendar now. The judge says the hush money trial is going to go forward on March 25th. That is a case in New York state court. So it's not something that if he were to become president, he could do anything about. Yeah, the specter of this man being in court again, in a courtroom, passing notes to his attorney on the rare occasions he can string together more than three or four words written down. That'll be fun. I do think that Trump is not happy being a defendant. I go back and forth on that question, sort of the perils of trying to psychoanalyze a man whose brain consists mostly of cottage cheese. I do sort of think sometimes that like, I mean, he doesn't think that any of this will ever result in meaningful legal consequences for him. He has derived that lesson from living his entire life in which there have never been any meaningful legal consequences for anything. If you sort of take him as someone who is running for president largely because he has nothing else to do and also it seems like probably the best <laughs> weapon he can wield in his legal fights, I sort of think he does like being able to frame himself as a victim persecuted on multiple fronts in multiple states in different courtrooms, which is why, again, this Fannie Willis 
thing is such a godsend for him because what is the Georgia prosecution about again? Who knows, right? We're talking about the personal lives of the prosecutors now, not the stuff that landed Trump there in the first place. It's, of course, like benefits him. That's exactly what he wants. Right, exactly. But it is salacious and it's legal and it's coming. So just give us an update on where these other cases are. The immunity case, will you explain to us what an on-boink bonk is and what that means and if that's happening? Yes. So in the Court of Appeals for, for the D.C. Circuit, Trump has asserted that as president, he has absolute immunity against criminal prosecution for any acts that he committed as president. If you want to like go a level or two deeper, his argument is that as president, basically, impeachment is the only method of holding him legally accountable. Therefore, unless he was impeached and convicted by the Senate, he has immunity from criminal prosecution for it today. There are sort of a number of problems with this, namely that it resolves the issue of the president's criminal acts entirely to like the ability to marshal a two-thirds majority in the Senate, which like, I don't know if we could get two-thirds of the Senate to agree on anything, much less convicting a president on impeachment charges. Fortunately, the D.C. Circuit rejected Trump's claim of absolute presidential immunity, and he is now asking the Supreme Court to sort of block that ruling. To do him a solid. Yes. While he seeks what's called en banc review, basically asking the entire D.C circuit to hear the case rather than the smaller three-judge panel that issued that decision. En banc review is sort of the last step before appealing the merits to the Supreme Court. Would you think the Supreme Court will go along with God, King, Emperor Trump or no? I do not think that they will want to set a precedent of presidents can never be prosecuted criminally for anything they do in office. I think the only question is exactly how they how they try and dispose of it to make as few waves as possible. I don't think there's any way they can do it without making waves. The question is just how big are those going to be? And what could they be? The easiest thing they could do is just decline to hear the case, right? To just let the D.C. Circuit's opinion speak for itself and to allow the process, which would functionally allow the prosecution to move forward. But Alito and Thomas seem like such partisan hacks and also Gorsuch and also Kavanaugh. Do you really think they would do something like not help out their guy? I've been wrong a bunch before. I'll probably be wrong again, but I do think that's probably a bridge too far. Like these justices had the opportunity to get involved in the 2020 election if they so wanted, and that was not a fight they're willing to do. The reason control of the Supreme Court is so important for the Republican Party and the conservative legal movement is the legal system has sort of this unearned veneer of legitimacy. So they would compromise that. That's right. They have a lot more to gain by not giving Donald Trump everything he wants here in future cases, in future issues that are much bigger than any one person's political career, any one person's presidential aspirations. This is one where they can save a bunch of political capital, burnish the court's reputation and fight another day, fight a lot more days. Jesus. So interesting. Also, we're all going to die. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's save the Taylor Swift conversation for next time. I look forward to it.
AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbionica is your solution to great-tasting, all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or toxins. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty System for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Did you know Rick Wilson and I are bringing together some friends for a general election kickoff party at City Winery in New York on March 6th? We're going to be chatting right after Super Tuesday about what's going on, and it is going to probably be the one fun night for the next 80 days. 
If you're in the New York area, please come by and join us. You can go to City Winery's website and grab a ticket. Rachel Bade is a senior Washington correspondent at Politico and author of Unchecked. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Rachel Bade. Thank you, Molly. I've missed you. Glad to be back. I missed you and I'm excited to have you back because I think of you as someone. I mean, first of all, Congress, historically, it can be a slightly sleepy beat sometimes. <laughs> what is happening right now, does it, it feel unprecedented? Yeah, absolutely. The chaos is, it's definitely reigning supreme. I could tell you that going into this year, my big thought was like, okay, the hill is going to be quiet. The campaign trail is going to be interesting. <laughs> I'm going to ignore Congress for a while. No, I keep getting dragged back to my old stomping grounds, the House of Representatives, because, I mean, the Republicans right now are just, you know, eating each other alive. And the thing that's most shocking to me in recent weeks is the level of hypocrisy that we are seeing from the GOP right now. I mean, hypocrisy, it's Washington. They're all, I mean, this is, we become cynical as reporters. I mean, I think it's important just to couch this. You are not a partisan. Absolutely not. You come from Congress, you work at Politico, so you're really here to just say what you're seeing, but what you're seeing is hypocrisy. Yes. I mean, I've covered the Hill for over a decade, especially Republicans, has have a lot of great relationships with them. And they will tell you, some even on the record, that the level of hypocrisy here is just un uncanny. I mean... I'm thinking, first of all, about what happened with the border deal recently. So talk us through that just for the people who are not completely right in. The White House obviously wants to send more money to Ukraine. They've been asking about this for months now. And Speaker Mike Johnson initially put up a requirement that, OK, if we're going to fund Ukraine, first we have to deal with our defense here at home. We need to crack down on the border. So this was a Speaker Johnson initial push right after he became Speaker and he basically said, look, I want a bipartisan border deal. It takes four months. Lawmakers go into this rabbit hole in the Senate and they come out and they have a bill that gives Republicans a whole bunch of conservative policy wins. Democrats get very little in terms of immigration. It's not so far from HB2, right? So HR2, which is the House version, HR2, yes, the House sorry. version of like a border crackdown, it definitely goes further. But these are not policy changes that Democrats would want for free. It's like pulling their teeth here. And it's all because they want Ukraine money, right? Like increasing standards for asylum, giving new authority to expel migrants, basically ending what Republicans call catch and release, you know, making it easier to detain people and not release them, but actually keep them in house while they're waiting for their asylum cases. Anyway, a lot of conservative policy wins. And Johnson blows it up, says no, because Donald Trump pressures him not to give Joe Biden a win on the border, which is clearly one of his biggest political problems right now. A lot of people do not like how Biden's handling the, the border issue. And Johnson follows suit. And then after the Senate just a few days ago passes this Ukraine assistance package without the border, since Johnson said no to what he originally requested, they send it to the House and guess what the speaker says now? He says it doesn't address the border, so we can't accept it. It's just like, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> right. It's not a great look to say the thing you gave me, I don't want and also I won't help you unless you give me the thing which I just rejected. Yeah. And like, look, I know... We always talk about how during a presidential election year, like I wish we were talking about at the beginning, usually it goes dark, not a lot gets done. 
all the votes are usually like very sort of posturing votes. Messaging. Yeah, messaging. But like, you know, there's a real need on the border right now. It's a top concern for voters. And, you know, you had people like Mitch McConnell in the Senate who were really championing and cheerleading this for a long time until they saw the writing on the wall and then they backtracked. It was just a stunning sort of embarrassing thing on Capitol Hill recently. I will also say that you know, Speaker Mike Johnson, a lot of House Republicans were excited about his ascension. Yeah. Now a lot of them, and I just wrote about this in Playbook a few days ago, a lot of them are pining for Kevin McCarthy again. <laughs> and that is saying something. People like Thomas Massey, who is a conservative, libertarian-esque member from Kentucky, he has long been a top critic of Kevin McCarthy, never been a good fan of him. He said that after Republicans tried and failed to impeach Mayorkas just a few days ago in a sort of an embarrassing display, he was like, you know, getting rid of McCarthy was a huge mistake. And people are starting to say yeah. that. Republicans are saying that a lot behind the scenes right now. Not a great look for Matt Gates, who was the driving force behind getting rid of McCarthy, right? Yeah, you know, that's actually a really interesting point. I should probably find him on the Hill and catch up a little buyer's remorse. I'm sure he will never <laughs> admit it, right? I mean, I think this is like yes. Gates's crowning achievement that he got rid of somebody he completely despised. But look, I, it's showing that maybe the issue wasn't McCarthy so much as the fact that they have a slim majority and Republicans writ large are so divided right now between like the MAGA wing of the party and the more traditional Republicans. Obviously, the MAGA wing is winging out hardcore right now. And that's a problem when, you know, the functions of Congress is to govern and pass legislation and compromises needed. And that is very out of fashion right now. So one of the things that I think makes your point really well is that they lost a sixth procedural vote on SALT. I know Jesse loves to talk about SALT, <laughs> but it's a sort of like the state and local deduction. Republicans from New York, and I think quite smartly, believe that if there's any chance of them keeping their seats, they need to try to pass this SALT deduction. Can you talk us through what's happening there? Yeah, absolutely. So these are a lot of Republicans, New York and Biden districts. Uh, they're worried about their seats and and, and California, too, right? And Yeah, California, too. Absolutely. And a lot of their constituents, high cost areas, right? They want to be able to take the state and local tax deduction. They want the, the sort of cap on that to be higher. So basically a bigger tax break for the fact that they're paying all these other state and local taxes a much bigger rate than the rest of the country is. The centrist Republicans were, were pushing Johnson to allow a vote on this. He said he would allow it. But it didn't even come to a full vote because before you have the vote on the legislation, you have what's called a rule in the House of Representatives. It's basically just governing the debate for them considering this bill. And usually it's up to the majority to carry a rule to passage. They need to get a majority of the House. Usually it's the, the majority Republicans are the ones who are supposed to carry this. Instead, 18 Republicans voted against it. All Democrats voted against it. The rule went down. And it never got considered. And the thing to know about this is it's it's the sixth time this has happened since Johnson became speaker. <laughs> um, and that is more than, I believe, something in like half a century. Congress has not seen a rule go down or fail on the floor this often in more than half a century. And I will also note, former Speaker Nancy Pelosi never lost a single vote on the House floor. Johnson has lost more than a half a dozen, including an effort to try to impeach the DHS secretary, Alejandro Mayorkas, and try to fund Ukraine to Israel, which is a largely bipartisan issue on Capitol Hill. But the way he did it pissed a lot of people off and it went down. He like did this sort of weird Hail Mary pass where he was like, we're going to do Israel funding with no offsets. 
which would mean just like more money, more foreign aid. Politically, there's a lot of popularity for it. And it died, too. And the Israel people were like, don't do it this way. Yeah. So initially he had put this money up for a vote months ago, but with these controversial offsets, basically targeted a bunch of Democratic priorities to cut spending there and move that money to fund this new assistance for Israel. That pissed off a lot of Dems. They said, no, this is an easy out. Now he sort of moved forward, getting rid of those offsets, just doing a what they call a clean bill that doesn't include sort of these partisan policy wins. But it came right after Johnson killed the border bill. And what's right. important to know about this is that the White House has been asking for a national security package that includes money for Israel, money for Ukraine and money for Taiwan. They want to keep them all together because the belief is that, that the medicine goes down with a little sugar. Right. So, you know, people right. who don't want to vote for Ukraine, maybe they vote for this package because they do want to support Israel. Johnson sort of carved that up, took Israel out and tried to pass it what is known as under suspension of the rules of the House. This means it requires two thirds of a majority to actually pass, not just a simple majority. So a lot of Republicans and Democrats needed. A lot of Democrats were pissed that he was trying to curve off this money just on Israel instead of also addressing Ukraine. And then he had also flip-flopped on this notion of offsetting this funding. So a lot of conservatives who wanted to see this money paid for were pissed at him too. So it's just the thing I keep hearing over and over about him by Republicans in the House is that he's all over the place. He's flying by the seat of his pants. With McCarthy, they said at least he had a strategy. Not everybody liked it. And a lot of people accused him of lying all the time, which was a big problem for him. But he had a strategy. He pitched it to his members and oftentimes he stuck to it. With Johnson, it seems like his mind is changing depending on, you know, the week. And, you know, he's doing one thing with Israel. Then he back backtracks a couple weeks later. His members get mad. He's telling members that he does support helping Ukraine, but then refuses to put Ukraine money on the House floor because of the threat from the MAGA wing and some of his members like Marjorie Taylor Greene saying they will oust him as speaker if he allows such a vote. So he's all over the place. And that's really angering a lot of people, whether they're conservatives, moderate Republicans, hawks or even doves in the House right now. And it's not a good place for him. I want to ask you about retirements. Because one of the things that we're seeing Republicans in the House and Democrats do, but the Republican ones have gotten a lot of attention. Mark Green, who is the chair of Homeland Security, is leaving after only six years. And these are like youngish people for Congress anyway, young. I just was hoping you could talk about that. Yeah. Mark Green still has uh, brown hair. So yes, that's not that's <laughs> not the majority in Congress these days. It's a huge deal. Chairman leaving. And what it says is that Republicans are not confident about keeping the House, number one. Well, obviously, the, the majority is very slim right now. What is it, like a three-seat? Wait, here, I found the people are resigning. So Kay Granger, who voted to keep McCarthy... Ken Bach, who's been actually very vocal about the Mallorca stuff. Blake Lukemeyer, right? But these are all sort of 2010. I mean, Greg Pence, we, Mike Pence's brother. I mean, if you look at the numbers and then Kevin leaves, Kathy McMorris Rogers, Mike Gallagher, they're sort of young-ish and sort of ambitious and leaving, right? Yeah, no, I mean, CMR, uh, Kathy McMorris Rogers, once in Republican leadership herself. Yeah, I mean, she's got a, a, a power committee position that she's wanted for a long time. Gallagher has very much been seen as sort of an up and comer. He's super young. I don't think he's he's got to be like in his what 
lowered fifties? No, not even. <laughs> I think he's like in his thirties, okay. actually, maybe forties. Um, he, uh, yeah, I think he's like closer to my age, but I, I could be totally wrong about that. But again, he has brown hair, which is not the norm <laughs> in Congress. But two things that this says: number one is thirty-nine. 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 Holy oh, shit! That's I told young. You. Wow. Okay, he's older than me. I'm just saying, never mind. But still very young. It says two things. It says that people are number one, they're they're pissed about Congress not working anymore. And like, you know, Republicans are in the majority and you don't hear a lot of them talk about this on the record, but basically every one of them will admit this to you either on background or, you know, in a private conversation that they're a shit show right now. They don't know what they're doing and the party's all over the place. And they think it's going to get worse because Donald Trump is going to be the nominee. And there's a big fear of him also pulling down Republicans. But like if you come to Congress to actually pass legislation, get things done, and like you have Republicans openly admitting that they're not putting a solution on the floor because Donald Trump wants to keep that problem to run on in 2024, read the border specifically, that's frustrating to a lot of members. And so... You know, people are sort of looking at the writing on the wall. They think they're probably not going to be in the majority again in 2025. And look, they're just seeing this is they're looking at their time and saying that they'd rather be doing other things. So it's it's pretty telling. Yeah. Talk me through Mayorkas. This impeachment now starts. It means that the Senate can't do anything, right? Yeah, no, the Senate, they can if they want. But they have to do this trial, right? That's actually been something that I've been doing some reporting on. There's a number of ways Democrats can try to get out of the trial. And there are conversations happening right now in the White House and also among Senate Democrats about how quickly can they make this go away? There is definitely a feeling amongst Democrats. And by the way, a lot of Republicans in the Senate, in the sort of legal constitutional scholar brainiac community, too, that sort of leans to the right, that this impeachment was not merited. It was not high crimes into misdemeanors. The founders talked about whether they should allow impeachment to be done for policy issues. And the founders completely rejected that debate and decided that, no, they didn't want that. Yet that's exactly what the House did. So there's a feeling amongst Democrats that they want to get rid of this. There's talk right now about doing what's called a motion to dismiss, basically after the articles come over to the Senate, which will happen next week. It's going to happen right after the Senate comes back from their President's Day recess. They can basically vote right away to try to get rid of the articles, dismiss them. They can also allow for opening statements. But by the way, if they do that, that means Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be presenting on the Senate floor talking about <laughs> Biden and the border. That was my next question. Tell us who these impeachment managers are, because this is amazing. The one that obviously stuck out to me was Marjorie Taylor Greene. And this is not someone that the White House is going to be wanting to give a huge microphone to. So again, this is why Democrats are looking to end this. Or maybe they should. Well, that's actually a good point, because I did have that thought too. But also she could say a lot of things that are not exactly true. During a trial, you can't just rebut her, right? The managers present and then the defense presents. You can't interrupt and say, objection, this is not true. So it's basically giving her like a free reign to say what she wants. They can just dismiss it at the front. They can do opening arguments and then dismiss it. And then the thing that a lot of people are talking about right now is actually referring these impeachment articles to a committee. This has been done with non-presidential right. impeachments in the past, Things like judicial impeachments, where they basically send it to a committee, the committee investigates it, and then recommends that the full Senate vote up or down, and the Senate votes up or down. So the problem with this, though, is even if it goes to a committee, we could see 
hearings on this matter. And again, I think the White House wants this to go away ASAP. It'll be interesting to see what they do, but definitely don't expect like a long, drawn out process. So, so interesting. Making Marjorie Taylor Greene an impeachment manager. The theory of the case here with Republicans, I think, is that the base loves Marjorie Taylor Greene and the rest of us or the sort of persuadable voter of which you know, there are fewer and fewer, that they will grow to love her. But if you're trying to keep the House, is this a brilliant play? Absolutely not. I would say there are, I know from conversations with Republicans on the Hill, a lot of them know that she is a loose cannon and that it will very much blow back on them politically. The reason she is in this position is because of the power she wields in the House. I can tell you, you know, when they were doing these Biden impeachment hearings a while ago, just to give you some insight into this, there was a debate about whether the impeachment should be going through the House Oversight Committee or the House Judiciary Committee. There was a couple hearings in the House Oversight Committee that were frankly embarrassing for Republicans, where their own witnesses said that what Biden had done or these allegations against Biden, again, were not liberal, turly, right? Yes, yes, exactly. Not so liberal, but definitely very conservative. And so there was talk about, okay, oversight doesn't know what they're doing. Jim Jordan is the chair of the Judiciary Committee. Let's just move this over to Jordan. A lot of Republicans were telling me they wanted to do this. The answer, however, was no, because of one main reason. Marjorie Taylor Greene is on oversight and she wants this. And if we take it from her, she will get pissed. And nobody wanted to piss her off in leadership. So the reason she is getting this position is not because Republicans think she's a great messenger. They know she's a very flawed one. The reason she's getting it is because they're trying to please her. And if they don't give her this position when she's been lobbying for it considerably behind the scenes, then they're going to be in trouble. And that, again, is not a place that these chairman or Republican leaders would be in right now. So it's yet another of Republicans being held hostage by their crazy. By the far right, by the MAGA wing. Yes. <laughs> and against what they know is their best interest and their own political gut instincts. So it's really interesting. Really interesting. Thank you so much, Rachel. Happy to be on, Molly. Good to see you. Dan Nathan is a panelist on Fast Money, as well as the co-host of the podcast On the Tape and OK Computer. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Dan Nathan. Thanks for having me back, Molly. It's one of my favorite podcasts. You know, I have a few of my own, so oh, therefore yeah. I have to put it in one of my favorite, but I love Fast Politics. Oh, you're the best. So I'm very happy to have you here. And first, I want you to explain to us because it's sort of an interesting week in the public markets, not getting a ton of like non-market related press. It has not carried over into the news cycle, but it's a little bit interesting. Talk to us about what happened on Monday and this sort of market volatility that followed. Yeah, so we had a situation where all eyes were on this CPI report. This is a, an inflation reading that a lot of market participants follow very closely. And, you know, expectations have been, and for the last year, that a lot of the effects of the Fed's monetary policy was to bring down the level of inflation. We saw it get, you know, as high as 9% in 2022. And therefore, you know, they have this 2% target. They've been speaking about it every time they have the opportunity to do so. Um, the administration has been touting the fact that inflation has come down dramatically from those lofty levels in 2022. So we got a reading for January inflation on Tuesday morning, and it was a little hotter than expected. 3.1 for the year. Correct. 3.1% year over year. And so a lot of, I guess, economists or strategists were expecting possibly a two point something reading, right? Getting closer to 
their 2% target, which would give the Fed the ability to then lower interest rates, right? And so that's something that markets have been keying off. The stock market just made a new all-time high with the S&P 500 at this nice round number of 5,000. Well, there we were. We closed there on Monday and on Tuesday with that hotter than expected reading, which is pushing out the Fed's ability to lower interest rates. The stock market sold off pretty aggressively. It has since recovered over the last couple of days, but a lot of economists, a lot of investors, a lot of strategists are starting to price in the fact that maybe the Fed will not be able to lower interest rates sooner than some had expected, which is something that buoys stock market valuations, which is one of the main reasons why the stock market from its October lows has rallied more than 20%. Right. Will you unpack that number for us? Because it's actually a little bit misleading, right? Yeah. A lot of folks have been like arguing for a very long time the way that that CPI is calculated. You know, it, it just doesn't incorporate a lot of things that a lot of regular Americans feel, whether it be, you know, pump and whether it be food, whether it be auto insurance, whether it be certain services that we all have to pay for. And so that reading is a little funky, you know, and it's also one of these things where it seems like every sort of economic reading that has the ability to kind of move the stock market as it relates to what the Fed might do with monetary policy, there's always um, some folks who, who just want to tear them apart and say they're not actual good readings. There's a lot of stuff in the employment data that speaks to the same thing. And that's another thing, you know, we can talk about inflation, but that January employment report was really hot too, right? It's showing that wage growth is really good at a time where unemployment is at 50-year lows, basically all-time lows. So you can speak as much as you want about inflation coming down, right? But you can also talk about a very hot jobs market. You can talk about, you know, upward pressure on wages. That is also a big input as it relates to inflation. So, you know, and then you can kind of go back to, okay, well, if employees are making more money year over year, right? And if inflation is still higher than the Fed would like it to be, if that inflation rate is below the wage growth level, right, that should be good for consumers. So there's all these sorts of ways to, to kind of parse this out. But the upshot of this week and some of the data that we've seen in employment over the last week or two is that the economy is still really strong. And as long as the economy is strong, then the Fed doesn't really have much case to lower interest rates. And that very high interest rate is the thing that could put the U.S. economy into a recession. And that's the thing that a lot of people are fearful. Right. So there's a circular logic here. And also even more than that, in those inflationary numbers, wasn't the sort of the largest uptick in real estate? Yeah, right. So one of the things that you think that with, you know, interest rates going higher, mortgage rates going higher, the ability to kind of for, for people to, to kind of move it has been hindered. So you've had this kind of really unnatural situation where, you know, like housing prices have stayed very high because people are not willing to move out of their very low mortgage rates, right? So we've seen mortgage rates as high as they've been in the last year or so um, in many decades or so. So, you know, you have asset prices that are very high. So you have housing, you have the stock market, um, you know, a whole host of other things. And so the Fed, again, what they're trying to do with these high interest rates is kind of tamp down demand, right? They want the economy to cool a little bit because they don't want inflation to become entrenched in the economy because then it's a situation where like in, in the 70s and, and Molly, you and I probably don't really remember. We're too young this, but to that idea this. of stagflation, right? Where right. you have a low growth environment, but you have high prices um, and, and therefore it just, that that's the sort of thing that would weigh on risk assets. So the Fed is not ready to drop the mic and take a victory lap and say, 
mission accomplished just yet. And that's the one thing, going back to your original question, that caused volatility in the equity market because on the CPI report, you saw interest rates move higher and you saw stock market prices go lower. And that's the sort of thing that if that were just kind of, you know, if investors were starting to think that, oh man, we are not going to get to that 2% in a target and the Fed's going to keep interest rates higher, meaning uh, more restrictive on the economy, then the longer that goes on is the, the greater the likelihood that we have to go into recession. And just so you know, as we're recording this today, two of the headlines that I saw is that the UK uh, you know, pushed into a recession over the last quarter, and so did Japan. So we're starting to see this in some very large economies um, around the world. Right. UK and Japan, both countries that said no to immigration, thus having a tighter labor market, thus having more inflation, thus tipping into recession. Not necessarily why they tipped into recession, but certainly Brexit is not helping. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the situation, I mean, we know that Japan has this massive demographic issue and it's been going on for a very long time. Their economy has been really stuck in the mud for a long time also. But when you think about the UK and obviously the break from um, the EU, you know, the EU is probably the next shoe to drop as it, you know, as it, as it relates to a recession. You know, the war in Ukraine has obviously been a, a bit of a headwind for the European economy. And so, you know, it brings us back to the U.S. a little bit and, and all the kind of fiscal wrangling that we have about aid towards uh, Ukraine. I mean, the situation in Ukraine was one of the, when, when Russia invaded was one of the major issues that caused that inflationary spike in 2022. We were just coming out of COVID. We we're dealing with a lot of the supply chain disruptions. A lot of that came from, you know, China and the like. But then all of a sudden we saw it with energy. We saw it with grain. And so this is one of the reasons why I just don't get the Republican stance towards aid to Ukraine. Um, if you think about just the potential bottlenecks that it has with the global economy, the other aspect I would just mention is obviously an expanded war in the Middle East. And, and we already know what's happened to shipping routes in the Red Sea, right? Causing the US and the UK to bomb, you know, uh, the Houthi rebels who are causing a lot of disruptions there, you know, that is inflationary. And then throw into the fact that on the flip side of this, we have further, you know, wrangling about, you know, trade situations with China, which are obviously inflationary at a time where the Chinese economy is actually in the opposite situation. It is deflationary. And you could make the argument while we have inflation in the developed world, you know, a deflationary economy in China, because so much of the world relies on China, right, as, as, a, as a place to, you know, kind of do business with them. That's a really, really bad situation, in my opinion. So not being priced into the stock market here in the U.S. at all-time highs, in my opinion. Yeah, those Houthi rebels, God forbid you disrupt shipping lines. America is not going to tolerate that. I'm not taking the side of the Houthi rebels. I mean, whatever is going on there is... Not a good stance. But, you know, one of the things that I am routinely, you know, as I sit on the desk at Fast Money on CNBC and, and the podcast that we do and the like, there's a, a little bit of a conundrum playing out here right now. Because when I think about... the stock market at all-time highs. I think about consumer confidence at pretty decent levels. I think home prices where they are, right? I see, you know, households, you know, we're starting to see the savings rate tick down a little bit, consumer credit tick up considerably, but consumer confidence is pretty high. We have, again, we have decent wage growth above 4% year over year. We have unemployment below 4% at all-time highs. We see you know, inflation, while this is a measure of year over year, so at 3.1%, it's still high, right? That's a, a cumulative sort of level here. Things seem okay for the economy. We avoided a recession that the stock market in 2022 was pricing in in 2023. 
The right. thing that I can't figure out is that why registered voters, right, and even right. Democrats feel so pessimistic about the economy in this election year. And it's one of the things that I'm going to be, you know, it, it, I, I'm going to be really trying to figure out for most of this year because we see how the Biden administration, how poorly they rank when it comes to the economy. And given everything that we know about Donald Trump and the chaos that he causes with the, just the kind of world order, the comments that he made about NATO, that should be one of the scariest things. If you are a U.S. multinational company and you do a lot of business in Europe, you do a lot of business in Asia, you do a lot of business in the Middle East, what he has to say about NATO is massively disruptive, in my opinion. And you should be scared shitless about that, right? And so nothing is being priced into that. Now, I don't want to talk about Donald Trump every day like we had to in 2016 or like we had to in 2020, at least from my standpoint as a market show. But I feel like the markets are really underestimating this sort of thing. And at some point, the Biden administration has to start leading with their successes that they've had on the economic front, right? At some point, it has to kind of flow through to the voter. I'm going to blow your mind here when I tell you that in fact, Joe Biden and even in Axios yesterday, Axios had a piece about how the Inflation Reduction Act is actually creating these mini booms in states that have not had any investment. I mean, I agree and I think they have to take it to the road. But I just want to point out that the the road for example, I was with a bunch of smart people and they were like, why doesn't Biden go out there? He's out there literally every day giving speeches. They are not being covered because people find it boring unless he gaffs. So you do see, I mean, I have seen, and the, I mean, these guys, you cannot get them to, I mean, you cannot get them to shut up about chips. Well, they need better surrogates. I mean, like it's, it's, it's really simple. I, I mean, I don't know if you watched John Stewart's return to the daily show the other night it was a pretty brilliant piece where he came out on that Thursday night presser. He was unhappy with, you know, like the, you know, the, the categorization of him as a well-meaning elderly man with a, with a bad memory and John Stewart's bit. And I'm so glad he's back. I, I really missed him. I actually honestly think that if he and, and Colbert had not gone off Comedy Central in 2016 before the election, I think that Hillary would have won. And I'm not right. blaming them. I got like kudos to those guys, but I'm glad he's back. Um, but, but the point there is that like, he had the opportunity to come out, be forceful, stick to the message, be combative with some of these Fox a-holes. And then he just couldn't let it be. And he had to come back and remind everybody that he literally in 2020 campaigned from his basement in Delaware. He will not be able to kind of deliver the message on his own. Kamala Harris will not be able to deliver the message on the areas that they need to be strong on, whether it be the economy, whether it be, you know, his uh, legislative agenda that was very successful in the first term. Um, so I don't know, man. I think we're kind of like at whatever the bad DEFCON is. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know right. if it's one or five, but we're getting close to that one. And when folks like, you know, John Stewart and his return to The Daily Show, you know, you know put a very fine point on it. We know who that audience is and we know the sort of messaging they have, they need better surrogates. That's how they get covered. Yeah. If we're going to open the door, to, does John Stewart make a great point by making fun of Biden for his age? I mean, OK. I mean, I don't know. I've watched a lot of Biden speeches. And is the man a gifted orator? He yes, gives a okay. good speech. No, he never was. You know what? Let me tell you something. I'm going to point you to a podcast that my friend Wilfred Frost did that his father did with Joe Biden in 1988. And it's in the podcast stores. It's called the, uh, I think it's called the Frost Files. 
And this was a never before released interview of Joe Biden when he was running for president the first time in 1988. And go listen to this. He sounded like an absolute fighter and a rock star. And I get it. It was a long time ago. But you know what is crazy as I was listening to this interview? Okay. This was David Frost and Joe Biden. It sounded like Gavin Newsom in 2024. And that's the sort of fighters that we need out there. You know what I mean? Like, like kind of like making the case against Trump right now, against uh, against MAGA politics, against, you know, like isolationist sort of stuff that that, that that couldn't be worse for our country's future as we think about this kind of rhetoric as a know and Russia. And the economy, if the economy is doing well, then they need to make a better case for it. If Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are not the people to do it, certainly Janet Yellen's not the person to do it, then they need to find those people and they need to find them fast. Because I'll tell you this, Molly, right now, and you get me a little fired up here, okay, is that the economy's okay right now. Okay. So if we think to November 5th, okay, if we think about that date, the likelihood, if we want to look at the probabilities, okay, whether the economy is much better than it is right now or much worse, okay, I'm kind of leaning towards much worse as we get longer into this year, okay, and that will be an absolute disaster. And it also brings me back to 2008 and that election year where the McCain thing was sunk because the economy fell apart, right? And, and, and obviously, he was not doing a great job on the campaign front and everything like that. But I get really nervous about that. And so as bad as Biden is polling right now in the economy and the fact that all this stuff, as it relates to Trump, all the stuff that's in the news and all the gas and all the nastiness and all the cruelty and all the moronic sort of things that he says, that Joe Biden is still polling the way he is on the economy in this environment. It's just crazy to me. And I don't think it gets better from here. So let's talk about the tight labor market for a minute. Labor market still tight, no immigration path yet again, because why legislate? I mean, what is the solve for that? Well, the hard part here is that until they actually get any credit for putting some policy in place, and I know that they wanted to do this bipartisan uh, you know, deal on the border, the border is the thing that's going to actually get all the headlines. I mean, it'll get all the right wing headlines. But it's crowding everything else out. And so when you think about immigration and you started talking about this as it relates to unemployment, we we're talking about that data, you know what I mean? Like, Look at the demographic problems that a country like China has. They have over, you know, 1.2 billion people. Some estimates by 2050, they're going to have 800 billion people. They have a huge problem. So like the whole idea that China is our big adversary right now over the next few decades, that just might not be the case. But fixing our border in a bipartisan way, in a humanitarian way, you know what I mean? And then doing the sorts of things that I think Democrats want to do the way that they view immigration and, you know, for our, you know, our economic well-being, we can't do that until we fix the border. And that's obviously another place right or wrong that this administration and the party in general, they they rank very poorly. on. I'm going to blow your mind here, which is, uh, you know, that the uh, Republicans blew up the border deal. I know that. But like when you think about who are the people that are going to dictate who wins this election in November? It's from four or five states. We know the states very well, okay? We know the economic sensibilities of those states. Again, you and I on fast politics or, or whatever we have these sorts of conversations among the people that we generally agree with, we can talk about it until we're blue in the face. But I'll tell you this, I'm gonna blow your mind. A lot of very left-leaning people that I speak to who are in business or in Wall Street or, or, or related industries who actually vote against their economic best interests for social reasons as it comes to democratic politics are really freaking worried right now. 
okay? And I don't think there's enough of that, you know, trepidation in the public scene right now among Democrats. I think it's a huge problem. So we're all gonna sit here and make ourselves feel better about like how we align on certain social issues, how we align on geopolitical issues, but we're gonna lose this election, okay? We're gonna lose this election if we really don't get our act together and become a bit more vocal about some of these really important points that I don't think between now and November, they're gonna rank better on the economy. I don't think they're gonna rank better on the, on the war in Gaza between now and November. And you can talk to, about, to me about gun control. You can talk to me about abortion and all those sorts of things that they have won elections on over the last few cycles. And they're not gonna matter this time because these other ones are gonna be more important. And it's gonna be, uh, in my opinion, it's about messaging and it's about choosing the right fighters. So you're getting this off polls? Well, you tell me. I mean, I just saw New York's third district where Democrats won by eight points. It was a 16-point swing in Nassau County. It was a Republican seat. They never should have lost that seat. You, <laughs> you can Monday morning quarterback. And in fact, when you listen to the voter interviews, the voters were one of the things Swazi did, which I think is quite smart and Democrats need to do, is he said there was a border deal. The reason why you believe and a lot of New York people believe that migration, even though it's down for the last two months, but OK, is because the Republican Republican governor from Texas is busing migrants into New York City. And the New York Post, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, who is a reactionary fascist and who would die for another Trump presidency, is running pictures of migrant crime all the time. So I go to my dermatologist and she says, what are they going to do about the migrants? Because we have a manufactured problem here. Fine. Okay. Tight labor market. So I have complicated feelings about demonizing a group of people desperate for a better life like our grandparents and great grandparents. But okay. But I'm just saying, if you look at what Swazi did, which was smart and is a really good template, was he went to voters and he said, look, Democrats made all these compromises to get a border deal. Donald Trump told Speaker Mike Johnson not to take the deal. And there is no border deal. And so these people have no path to make money. There is no legal way for them to earn money. They cannot pay Social Security taxes. They cannot work. And so they live on the dole. Yeah, listen, I'm as sympathetic to all of that, okay? Like, I live in New York City. I see what's going on. I, I give to a whole host of things, you know what I mean? And I try to be extremely empathetic to all that. So you don't even need to be sympathetic. This is economic sense to have people work in the labor market. You and I are on the same page. But what I'm saying is, is like we have the potential to maybe win back the House, the potential to hold the Senate. Right. But like the strong potential or the probability right now is that we lose the White House and, and we know what's going to happen. He didn't give a crap who owns what House or, or the Senate. Like things are going to get really nasty here. And so my point is really happy about this, you know, special election, he's going to have to run again in November, right? Like, then we need more people voicing those sorts of messages in a way that that's kind of relating to the people. Listen, I live in New York City. I canceled the New York Post in 2016. You know, I read the Wall Street Journal. I don't read the page, but I read the New York Times. I read the same things that you do, right? Like every morning. And I don't read the Rupert Murdoch crap. It is busting through, you know what I mean? Oh, outside yeah. The bubble. Oh, I, yeah. I agree with no, no, it's a good point. Thank you so much. I didn't mean to be uh, combative. No, I love it. Let me tell you something, and I'll leave you with this, okay? If we, on this side, 
don't have these sorts of battles right now, we are literally going to be in for it, man. Because if you thought 2017, 18, 19, 20 and into early 21 were bad, just wait. No, and I agree. And the truth is, like, the road to Hillary Clinton losing was filled with a lot of smugness. Yeah. I talked to a lot of people like you, Molly, who have big voices and bullhorns and the like, and everybody has just coalesced around the fact that this is the team. It's Biden-Harris. And I get it. There's not this, you know, you can't challenge them. You're never going to have a future in the Democratic Party. The DNC's rigged it. There's not, you know, a primary apparatus in place. But man, if this guy, you know, trips over a podium like his, I guess, defense secretary and, and is immobilized, I mean, it's lights out because a Kamala Harris at the top of the ticket, that's not winning. And you tell me, how you get a, you know, Gavin Newsom, Whitner ticket. That dog hunts. I'm just telling you, that dog hunts right now. But listen, I'm going off here, but I think more people need to start to speak up and figure out what a plan B is because we are right about ready to be in a very difficult situation in the not so distant future. Thank you, Dan. All right, Molly, see ya, thanks. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. My Jug Fast, there is a lot of exciting clips coming out of the Fannie Willis trial today. What did you see here? I'm in rage about this trial. First of all, it's not a trial. It's a hearing. The Republicans are trying to get Fannie Willis, the Fulton County DA, kicked off of this case because she had, before the indictment, dated one of the lawyers on the case. By the way, she's no longer with him. And it was an entire four, five, six hours, a bunch of hours of them trying to sully her and imply that she was somehow doing something improper. It was like yet another time when I've watched MAGA World try to target a woman, in this case, a woman of color, with like a low, sleazy uh, innuendo. And it's funny because it's like, it's not funny, it's infuriating. But if you think about it, the Republicans, this is all in service to one Donald J. Trump, who in fact did pay a porn star when his third wife was pregnant so that she would not rat him out during his run for president. I mean, all of the CD innuendo, all of the sleazy crap that these lawyers are trying to pin on this woman because she wants to hold Donald Trump accountable. Well, all that stuff, by the way, Donald Trump did it. So to sit there and watch a really a professional, smart woman who with a really accomplished career, who had had all of these like very accomplished jobs be sullied by these disgusting lawyers in service to Donald Trump. It gave me real flashbacks to some of the many, many times we've seen Trump sycophants do disgusting things to women in the name of Donald Trump. And those fuckers, they're my moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. 
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? It's estimated over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com today.